Good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage is Ezekiel 20, verses 1 through 44. So we are doing the whole chapter, almost. All right, Ezekiel 20, verses 1 through 44. In the seventh year, in the fifth month on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Have you come to inquire of me? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, declares the sovereign Lord. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Then confront them with the detestable practices of their ancestors and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me, they did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I have revealed myself to the Israelites. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, by which the person who obeys them will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us, so they would know that I am the Lord, made them holy. Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not follow my decrees, but rejected my laws, by which the person who obeys them will live, and they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the wilderness. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nation in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, they up with, also with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands, because they rejected my laws and did not follow my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, for their hearts were devoted to their idols. Yet I looked on them with pity and did not destroy them or put an end to them in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, do not follow the statutes of your parents or keep the laws or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
but the children rebelled against me. They did not follow my decrees. They were not careful to keep my laws, of which I said the person who obeys them will live by them, and they desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries because they had not obeyed my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, and their eyes lusted after their parents' idols. So I gave them other statutes that were not good laws and through which they could not live. I defiled them through their gifts, the sacrifice of every firstborn, that I might fill them with horror, so that they would know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In this also your ancestors blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land I had sworn to give them, they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, and there they offered their sacrifices, made offerings that aroused my anger, presented their fragrant incense, and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, what is the high place you go to? It is called Bamah to this day. Therefore you say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will you defile yourselves the way your ancestors did and lust after their vile images? When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your children in the fire. You continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, you Israelites? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. You say, we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. But what you have in mind will never happen. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations and there, face to face, I will execute judgment upon you. As I judged your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me. Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the, enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, go and serve your idols, every one of you. But afterward, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord, there in the land all the people of Israel will serve me, and there I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts along with all your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will be proved holy through you in the sight of other nations. Then you will know that I am the Lord 
when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land I had sworn with uplifted hand to give to your ancestors. There you will remember your conduct and all the actions by which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves for all the evil you have done. You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices, you people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. Thanks, Becca. Morning, all of you. Great to see you here this morning. Merry Christmas. Before I really get too far into things today, I just want to throw in a personal plug for uh, the manuscript Bible study that, that John was describing. Uh, one of the toughest questions that I was asked in my many interviews before coming here, uh, Nick just threw me a hypothetical situation. He said, if, you're, if you knew that you were going to be put in jail tomorrow and you could only take one book of the Bible with you, what would you bring? Um, that's always a terrible question for me, or some variant of that question is a terrible question for me, because I can never decide if I should bring John or Hebrews. Uh, and fortunately, next year we're going to be teaching John, but all of you will also have the opportunity to join the manuscript study and work through Hebrews. And I just want to encourage as many of you as possible to be a part of it. Uh, not only will you get to study an amazing book of the Bible, uh, but also working with some of the teachers of that class will help you grow as Bible readers when you come to every other book of the Bible. Uh, also, John, he does brew, he brews. The dad jokes start early. I don't know if, if Adelie is teething or a sleep regression or what. <laughs> Y'all join me in prayer. Oh God, you say that you look to people who tremble at your word. God, today, your word is very heavy. Your word, if it's really understood, stands to spin us around and flip us upside down and make us see things that we never thought that we would see. So, Lord God, we ask that you would come and be our teacher, that you would reveal to us great and mighty things that we don't know. That's what we ask. We ask especially that we would help us to know you, to look at you, to understand you for who you truly are and so sanctify your great name. Be glorified in us and in all the peoples of the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If I had ever been good at math, it's very likely that I would be something other than a pastor today. I, I probably, if I could have chosen, would have been something like a physicist or a theoretical physicist or an astrophysicist. And for me, that's because the weirdness of the world is absolutely thrilling to me. Like, if you take, if you take a, a electron microscope and you look at something you think is totally solid, a block of concrete, a slab of steel, and you look at it through one of these electron microscopes, like you just see constant motion while these atomic particles are whirring around and around and around and around. Or uh, one of my favorite experiments that I heard about in the last 24 months was some, some physicists in the UK demonstrated one of the fundamental principles of what, what's called quantum physics, where basically they took two light photons, smallest, most elemental bits of light that we can really get at, and they got them into a state that's called quantum entanglement, 
And in entanglement, it means that there's such a strong bond between two different bits of matter that what you do to one bit of matter will affect what happens to the other matter, even if they're not touching. So like, you know, normally, if I was gonna move something, I would have to touch it physically, but they got these, these atoms, these particles of light, these photons so closely related that they separated them in space, they made one photon spin a different way, and they watched the other photon from way over in a different part of space start spinning at the same time in sympathy. That's like saying that when I flip on a lamp in my basement, the light shines in my neighbor's attic. The weirdness of the physical world is just astounding. And it's, it's those sort of like, those paradigm shifting moments where you realize that, the, that what you thought was solid is actually in constant motion, or what you thought was separate is actually unified, that I love about physics. I mean, you think about one of like the basic insights that has kind of defined physics and astrophysics and our view of the natural world in the modern period, and it's the shift from our th the way of thinking that had endured for thousands of years, that the Earth is at the center of the solar system, and you know, all of us who have been to school know, well, of course, the sun's at the center of the solar system. We've seen the diagrams, we've seen the models. But you have to remember, you have to kind of like put yourself back in that state of initial ignorance. Imagine that you woke up one morning and actually, for the first time, the question dawned on you. Do I orbit around the sun or does the sun orbit around me? Well, if you look at the sky, it looks like the sun is moving. You've got all kinds of evidence that you're at the center. There's not a point in the day, there's not a point from one season to the next where you look and see the sun in the same place, so clearly the sun is moving. So just imagine the kind of rush and the kind of like broken-headed mental quietude that dawns on someone like Copernicus when suddenly they realize, oh, oh my gosh. It just looks like the sun's moving. Really, I'm moving incredibly fast on this ball whirling around the sun, and that's why it looks like the sun is moving. That kind of paradigm shift is amazing to me. And I have to say, that's the kind of feeling that I get when I read a text like Ezekiel 20. It's this bit of shocking, outside-the-box thinking that takes what I think is solid and familiar and just flips it on its head. So let's work through it for a second. At first, the elders come to inquire of Ezekiel. And that sounds like a pretty noble thing. It sounds like the right thing to do under their circumstances. They're trying to do better than the leaders of Israel that a prophet like Jeremiah critiques. When, when Jeremiah is thinking about the leaders of Israel back in the city, he says that they've become idiots because they've not sought out the Lord's counsel. This is Jeremiah 10. And Inquiring of God has a long pedigree in the history of like, Israel. Just look back to, to the life of King David. If you wanted one solid example of a life lived in the constant repetition of inquiring of God, it's David. It happens a lot of times, especially when David is finding himself uh, in some form of conflict with enemies of Israel. The Philistines come out to do battle with him. David goes to inquire of God, and God says, nope, don't attack him from the front, sneak around from behind. Or before David is made king, when he goes on a raid, and he comes back, and he finds that someone has come and like, raided all of his family and his men's families behind him when they weren't looking, the men are ready to stone him because their hearts are broken. They want their wives and their kids back. And so David goes and inquires of God, and God says, nope, chase him down. You'll overtake him. You'll recover everything. 
So this pattern of inquiring after God is kind of a natural thing to do, you'd think, if you're the elders of Israel and you're trying to understand how are we supposed to relate to these Babylonians or these Assyrians? How are we supposed to understand to these how are we supposed to understand these huge powerful nations that have come and taken us captive? What are we supposed to do now? How do we get the victory the way David did? And God's answer is, nope, we're going to judge you and don't you dare inquire of me. This is what the elders don't understand. They think that they're like the leaders of the people who are supposed to be helping the people navigate their way through the nations to the victory of God. But God says, nope, you're not like David. If you actually want to know who you are, let's go back a little further in your history. And so God brings them back to the Exodus story. God brings them back to the story of the golden calf. The story where while Moses is up on the mountain, Israel gets so wild and out of control with idolatry that God looks down and decides that it would be a pretty good idea for him to wipe them out entirely. That's where the elders of Israel actually are. They deserve to be completely annihilated. So why doesn't God? Why doesn't God wipe Israel off the face of the earth? Why didn't God wipe Israel off the face of the earth in the wilderness? And the answer if you were looking for one phrase that occurs again and again and again and again in the course of Ezekiel 20 is, for the sake of my name. When Moses intercedes, when Moses asks that God refrain from overwhelming and but totally deserved judgment, he says, this is the reason why I'm asking you to do this because all the other nations who watched you bring Israel up out of Egypt are still watching. They can still see what you're doing and if you bring Israel out from Egypt into the wilderness, and then you wipe them out in the wilderness, what is that going to say about what kind of God you are? And that's the answer that God listens to. Not that he has mercy on Israel, not that he feels bad for them, not that Israel deserves anything less than total judgment, but God, for the sake of his own name, decides he'll refrain. He'll hold back. But there's still judgment. There's still judgment in the wilderness. Like thousands of people died to get the riot down, down in the camp back under control. And then the golden calf gets ground up and thrown into the water and the Israelites have to drink it. And there's massive judgment and massive repentance. And only then does God go about leading them back up. And now God says to the elders of Israel in exile, this is where you guys are. You guys are at the golden calf stage, not the trying to navigate your way through the politics of the world stage. And this is why God promises that he's going to one day bring Israel back up from exile into the promised land. There's a few really hopeful verses in Ezekiel 20. God basically says, don't worry, exile isn't permanent. I'm taking you back to the land. I still am keeping my promise to Abraham. You're going back there. You're going to be purified first. There's going to be some discipline first. But for the sake of my name, I'm going to keep every promise and I'm going to bring you back. So don't lose hope. But this is the tough thing. That sounds like really, really good news on the one hand, right? Like, okay, I have to sit tight in exile, but one day me or my kids or somebody were going back to the land of promise. That sounds like great news. But you also have to think about the reason why it's great news. And the reason why it's great news 
insists that in order for you to receive the great news, you have to suspend your belief that you are the center of the universe. You have to suspend your belief that the land is yours because of your good, because of what you've done, or even because of what Abraham before you did. You have to suspend all of that and accept the reality that the reason why you enjoy any good thing, any promise from God, has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with your creator and the glory of his name. He is the sun at the center of the solar system and you are the earth orbiting around him, not vice versa. Israel doesn't exist to serve their own interests, and Israel's God doesn't exist to serve the interests of Israel. No, it's the other way around. Israel exists because God called them into being to serve his purposes of blessing the whole world in Abraham's offspring. That's why Israel exists. And unless they can keep that straight, there's no way they're ever gonna be able to live faithfully in the land. So even now, while they're in exile, this is what God's doing. He's going about purifying them, disciplining them, correcting them, forming them back into the sort of people who can live well in the land. But that does mean that they have to sit tight and they have to seek God's glory, not their own comfort. So if you're really at this point looking for one unifying idea for this whole sermon, it's this. It's as true for us as it was true for the elders who came to Ezekiel. It's that God's glory is fundamental and our good, whatever it is, is at best ornamental. So what I mean by the distinction between fundamental and ornamental is sort of the way you could think about a house, like a foundation of a house is fundamental. It's absolutely essential. Without the foundation, there is no house. Walls are super important, but walls are ornamental. And if you ever see walls standing up straight, you don't say those are awesome walls. What you should think is the foundation of that house is doing its job. Or to go back to the like planets in the sun imagery, the gravity of the sun is fundamental. The movement of the planets around the sun are ornamental. They move, and when you see them moving, what they point you back to is the absolute dominance of the mass and the power and the glory of the sun at the center. God is the gravitational center for the church, not the other way around. God does not exist for our sake, as much as we often wish he did. But the problem is, and a lot of the time, we find ourselves essentially in like the spiritual state that's the equivalent of what it was like to be an astronomer before Copernicus. When we look around, there seems to be all kinds of evidence that no, actually we're at the center and God is the one who's moving wildly, taking care of us. God's the one who's saving us. God's the one who's teaching us. God's the one who is empowering us for lives of good. God's the one who's healing us. God's the one who promises to resurrect us. God will renew the heavens and the earth for us. So doesn't it look like God's in constant motion and we're the ones who are kind of holding still? And it's true that God is doing all of these things and he has promised to do all of these things for us and thank God because what a miserable existence it would be without him. There would be no existence without him. So why? Why is he doing all of these things? Why does he treat us with such incredible love, mercy, and compassion? And here's the answer. Because when God is good to his people, it brings God glory. The answer is not 
Because God hates the sin in the world, but loves the righteousness that he sees in his people, so he rewards us with good. The answer is not that God is good to his people because he has compassion on them, because he feels sorry for them for having to endure the nasty circumstances that are caused by by sin and the fall. The answer is not even that God is good to his people because he looks at them and sees their incredible dignity and value as bearers of his divine image. Ultimately, when God is good, when God expresses love, when God expresses kindness and his providential care for us and for everything that he has made, he does it because it proclaims his own glory. This is the paradigm-shattering truth of Ezekiel 20. All human beings are incredibly precious, and God does reward the people who seek him. That's true. But the reason that he does it is not for the sake of rewarding us, it's for the sake of glorifying himself in our good, and his glory outweighs even our greatest human attainments. Now, there used to be a time in churches like ours where when we were kids, we would have had to gone through what you could call a catechism class. Uh, so some of you who grew up in various kinds of religious schools, especially like Catholic schools, you would have had to go through a catechism class. Anyone ever have to do catechism? Yeah, quite a few of you. How many, how many of you were bored in catechism? Yeah. Again, quite a few of you. But one of the great Protestant catechisms is a, is a little document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And at one point, so catechisms are arranged like questions and answers. There's a question. And then it gives you a biblical answer to that question. So here's the question. I'm going to summarize, but what's the point of human beings? Why do they exist? Yeah, some of you already know the answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is a brilliant answer. That captures in one sentence the spiritual truth lying at the heart of of Ezekiel 20. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how we live our lives depends intimately on how we understand the relationship between the glory that we give to God and our life of enjoyment of God. Because... Well, I love the way that Jonathan Edwards puts it. I'm not going to read the long Puritan quote because your eyes will glaze over. But basically, what Edwards argues is that the way you glorify God is by enjoying him. You experience his good all the time. And every time that you experience his good and it brings any measure of joy to your life, that's where God is glorified. That's where God is glorified. And so that's why God goes about bringing good to us. That's why God goes about seeking for us to experience and taste and see his goodness. Because when he's extending his goodness to us as his people, he's extending himself in us and through us. And when we live lives of joy and happiness and fulfillment in him, his glory is manifest. When anyone from the outside looks in at God's people and sees them happy and sees them living well, and sees them living at peace, and sees them living at light when the world around them is full of darkness, that's when God is glorified. So it's not just to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Our problem is we kind of like to focus on the enjoy and elide the glorify. We tend to think of ourselves and our enjoyment as the center or the end or the purpose. But even at the most fundamental level, there is no bit of true Christian joy 
that is separate from the glory of God's name. I think, for example, of, I mean, really, I think this is the fundamental example, but I think about the experience of forgiveness of sin. You guys, I'm sure none of you sinned this week, but for those of you who maybe did, you remember what it feels like to feel that pang of conviction, to know, oh, shoot, I went off the rails. Maybe you remember it before your conversion, that sense of, oh my gosh, where am I, who am I, what have I done? And then to confess your sins and to encounter the God who is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Okay, why does God forgive you your sins? 1 John 2.12, for the sake of his name. Even in forgiving your sins, the enjoyment that you gain, the peace that you gain by having your sins forgiven is not even just for you, it is for the glory of God and the sake of his name. This is why we are his people who are called by his name. All right, so here's three ways that you can go about glorifying God and enjoy him forever. Three of many, but I think three that you can draw a pretty straight line between these and the text of Ezekiel 20. And the first one is you can go pray. Simply pray. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are praying that God's name would be sanctified. Uh, this is, I think, the toughest little bit of the Lord's Prayer because we get really tripped up by the oldie-timey language. But what does hallowed be thy name actually mean? Well, if you looked at the Greek translation of Ezekiel that the apostles were reading at the time of the New Testament, it's the same verb. Let your name be sanctified. Let your name be reckoned holy. So when Ezekiel says that my name will be sanctified, he's using in Ezekiel the same Greek verb that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer to say, hallowed be thy name. What the Lord's Prayer prays is, Lord God, let your name be sanctified. So go about asking every day that God's name would be sanctified. And what does it mean that God's name would be sanctified? What are you actually praying? You're praying that God will go to work glorifying himself in the world. That God will go about doing the things in the sight of all the peoples that only God can do so that everyone, whether they belong to the church or not, will hold God's name in high esteem. I mean, think about what it was like uh, in the early days of the church in the book of Acts, when the apostles are walking through the streets doing signs and wonders, like even handkerchiefs that are being carried from Peter's body to the sick are being healed, demons are being cast out. People who are not members of the assembly, who are not members of the church, are afraid to associate with the Christians because they know something big is going on there, and those people's names are held in high esteem in the whole city, even by the folks who aren't Christians. That's what you pray when you pray, hallowed be thy name. You pray that the world around the church will look at the church and go, that might not be me, but there is something going on there. This is what prayer is about. It's a, not a prayer that God will show me what to do, like, like the elders are asking. Prayer is asking God to move on his own behalf. This is why God brings Israel up out of Egypt. This is why God brings Israel back from exile. This is why God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ to save the whole world. He is acting on behalf of his own name and his own glory. And so when the world around us sees God at work, that's when God's name is sanctified. So pray like your master taught you. Lord God, let your name be sanctified. Here's a second thing you can do. You can go to work. Ephesians 2.10, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is another place where our kind of spiritual narcissism tends to get the better of us. 
when we distinguish between good works and works of sin, and we try to encourage ourselves and the people around us to do the good and avoid the sin. How do we encourage them to do it? We say, well, in godliness, there's great gain. There's much reward. You're storing up a treasure for yourself in heaven. Or why do you not sin? Because it brings incredibly awful consequences for you and for the people around you. Because the wages of sin are death. Ezekiel 20 reminds us that our actions are part of a bigger story than just our own uh, actions and their consequences for us and for the people around us. Everything we do either profanes God's name in the sight of the people who watch us or it brings glory to God's name. So, I mean, think about it this way. Let's just say, hypothetically, you go to work. Your coworkers know that you're a Christian, but they're not. And then they notice that you join them in gossiping about your boss's failing marriage. Then they hop on social media and they read the horrifically vile and graceless thing that you said to somebody who disagreed with you about a point of contemporary politics. Then they see you dealing with an employee who reports to you directly and hear you yelling at them and berating them. Now at that point, what has that person concluded not just about you, but about the God you profess to serve? God's name is profaned amongst your coworkers because of your sin. Your sin is not just about you. And in the same way, neither are your good deeds. When they see you extending love and mercy and compassion to someone who reports to you but who is failing on the job because it turns out their kid is homesick with leukemia, then God's name is glorified. So go to work and do the right thing, not just for your own sake, not just for storing up treasures in heaven, but because you're part of a bigger story and because the spiritual gravity of God's immensity compels you to go and do what's good and right. Remember, this is one of the more interesting uh, kind of tensions in the teaching of Jesus about how we go about and do our work. Uh, I'm tempted to just right now do a verse-by-verse exegesis of the Sermon on the Mount, but just a couple passages, bear with me. So the first one, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. You have your reward in full then. But on the other hand, Jesus also says, let people around you see your good deeds so that they'll praise your Father in heaven. Now, notice that in both cases, Jesus has to assume that people are going to see what you do. It's inevitable. People are going to see what you do. So why is it bad one time when folks see what you do, and why is it good the next? It comes down to the intention behind the action. Are you looking to be seen and rewarded for your actions, or are you looking to glorify God in your actions? When you see an opportunity for good, do you pursue and follow after good because your first thought is the glory of God, or do you do it because you want the credit that will come to your account. A final point. When you find yourself in a situation like Israel and like the elders of Israel, when you're in exile and you're tempted to think, okay, what do I do now in order to get out of exile? My circumstances are super uncomfortable, but surely if I ask God, he'll show me the right thing to do because this is up to me, this is up to what I can do. When you find yourself in circumstances like that, endure divine discipline. This is one of the great messages of the book of Hebrews. 
you need to endure divine discipline. Right now, the American church, American Christians, are in a place, at least some of us, analogous to what was happening to Israel's elders. Uh, We may not be in exile, but we're dealing with some really uncomfortable stuff that's bigger than any one of us. Across denominations and church subcultures, we're in numerical decline. In terms of our reputation with outsiders, we've never been lower. Our prestige has decreased. We have to deal with increased cultural opposition to our ideas and our way of life. There's a new scandal amongst leaders of the church, it seems like every day or every week, and all of those factors together, they kind of conspire to defame God's name among the nations. So, how do we deal with those things? One really tempting answer is to assume that all of these unfortunate facts are just the result of external pressures. Like the culture around us is more wicked than it's ever been, and it's only natural that as we bump into a more wicked culture that it's gonna have like, some effect on the church, but really, all we need to do is shift and do the right thing and will overcome. A wicked culture equals a weak church, basically. And I think, frankly, against the biblical pattern, that idea is kind of laughable. When in the history of scripture were God's people ever overcome by a wicked culture around them, unless they themselves had succumbed to wickedness? Look at the pattern in the book of Judges. They're surrounded by enemies on all sides. Doesn't matter that they're surrounded by enemies on all sides. When they're worshiping God faithfully and keeping the law, what happens? They're unstoppable. God raises up judges and pours out his spirit and leads them to victory after victory after victory. But when they start to become like the nations around them and they start to worship idols, then God withdraws his presence until things get painful enough that they wake up and go, oh, hang on a second. Something's out of balance. We've abandoned God. And then, there's new restoration. That divine discipline that comes with the pinch of uncomfortable circumstances isn't necessarily a sign telling us to go inquire of God. It's a sign that says, sit still, God will act for the sake of his own name. Endure discipline. Hebrews is full of this. One of the amazing, amazing things that Hebrews teaches us is that Jesus himself, as he grew as a human being, not in regards to his divine nature, but as he grew as a human being from a baby into maturity, had to endure suffering. And the reason why he had to endure suffering is so that he would come to perfection. It says that Christ was perfected by suffering. If Christ was perfected by suffering, arm yourself with the same purpose. Endure suffering. God is treating us as children when we suffer. If you're willing to endure the suffering that comes from divine discipline and see it as God bringing you to perfection, even if sometimes that means sitting in exile for a season, letting God purify you, know that the point to the discipline is to bring you back to the land of promise. In Hebrews, discipline and education are the same word. Like, in English, we distinguish between the two. Discipline, that sounds like punishment, it's what you do on one side. Education, that sounds more like imparting knowledge. In Hebrews, it's the same word, paideia. 
It's all one thing, and it's all about bringing human character to perfection. And that's why in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So, remember who God is. Remember what his name is. Remember him at the burning bush with Moses when he reveals his name, his mysterious name that even to this day we don't totally know how to pronounce, but we do our best. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or, or maybe what the name means is I will cause to be. I am he who causes to be. This is the God who's light and who's good and who is the creator, the one who causes to be. And if God were a cosmic toddler, his glory could very easily consist in building up the world and building all of us in the world just to knock us down again and laugh at the destruction. But the amazing thing about God is that he is the kind of creator whose glory consists not in destroying, but in building up and refining and perfecting. He does so much for us We see him at work creating and sustaining and providing in all of these ways that it can feel like we're the ones holding still at the center and he's the one whirling around us. And it's really easy to forget that it's the other way around. So remember the limitations of your own perspective, of my own perspective, of our own perspective. Remember that we are whirling at great speed around him. And to the degree that we keep our face and our eyes set on him, we're found But once we turn away, without him, we're lost in space, whirling through the void. Without him, we wouldn't even exist at all. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for your great glory. We thank you that we get to participate in it and share in it, and that everything that's for your glory is for our good. But we ask that you would give us such an awareness of who you are, what your purpose is, what your majesty is, that we would never lose our center of gravity, that you would keep us on balance, focused on you, enjoying you, and glorifying you because of it. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.